We continue with our second letter we've been looking at for James the last couple of weeks. It talked about James being practical Christianity, kind of covers the nuts and bolts, the blocking and tackling of the Christian life, if you would. You know, uh, it's James covers all the basic stuff of human life, our relationships, you know, how we use our speech, how we look at our resources. Today, he looks at the relationship between the, uh, those in the community who are fairly well off and those who are struggling in their bodily necessities. And what's the relationship between the two? James is a bishop of his community in Jerusalem. The community is relatively poor for the most part, but there are members of his community that have modest means and some are very wealthy. And the situation in his community is that those who are of poor uh, situation, poor means, aren't being taken care of in a sense by being provided for by those that have modest or wealthy means. Let's take a look at what he says here. He says, what does it profit, my brethren, if a man says he has faith but not works? Now, faith here refers to our commitment to the Lord, our hearts moved by grace to open our hearts to a relationship with him. Actually, the word faith uh, means part over. So we're talking about faith as a response to God's grace through his son, in which I'm willing to give my heart over to him and have my life shaped by his word and live as he wants me to live. Works here are deeds done that transform people's lives. They are what we call in the Catholic faith works of mercy, spiritual works of mercy, corporal works of mercy, feeding the poor and clothing um, the naked and providing shelter and um, instructing others about our faith and so on. These are works done that are deeds done to help provide for people in their both spiritual necessities and physical necessities. So James says here that if you have faith but not works, he says, then how can the person say they really have faith? He said, and he gives an example. And this is an example from his community. So he's not making this up. This is part of what's going on in his his community. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and is lacking daily food, which means they don't have the basic necessities for life, then he says, uh, and you say to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled. In other words, be prosperous, be blessed, and yet don't do anything to help them in their basic necessities. Then he says, what does your faith profit you? In other words, you say you believe you're a follower of Christ. You say that, that you are, you know, that you believe in his saving grace at the cross. You say that you made a commitment to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but yet you have your brother or sister in Christ, in blood that you do, he says, and yet they have basic necessities that aren't being taken care of, and you have the means to do so, he says, and you don't do it. He says, do you really have faith? Do you really, are you really a follower of Jesus? Are you really a disciple of his, is what he's asking. And then he goes on to say, so faith by itself has, has no works, is dead. In other words, if I have a relationship with Christ and say I'm a follower of Jesus, then it's got to be manifested in how I care for those who are my sisters and brothers in Christ, joined to me in baptism, that lack the basic necessities of life. If I don't care for them, James is saying that my faith is basically dead. It's, it's useless. It doesn't, it doesn't profit me anything. So James is saying here that you have that faith in Christ is to be transformed into actions or deeds that help people that are in need, particularly 
in the believing community. Again, there are many people outside the community who are, who are in need, but he's talking here just right now about those that are Christians that are joined to us in baptism, who are joined to us at the table of the Eucharist. Your faith is not alive. It it's, doesn't profit you anything. And of course, we know that, um, and James is always kind of jumping off the relationship that we have with Christ and who Jesus is. We know Jesus said in his first sermon in the synagogue, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, bring healing to the brokenhearted, to bring sight to the blind, to release those in prison, to announce a year of favor. Jesus saw himself, as we spoke about last week, going to the lowest of the lowest in society. Well, here James is even talking about that. He's just talking about your sisters and brothers in Christ who come and worship with you, and they have basic necessities that aren't being taken care of, and you have the means to do so, we say. So then he says this, if you have faith then, and I have works, show me your faith apart from your works, he says, and by my works I will show you my faith. So again, faith in Christ is also to lead us to transform deeds that minister to the basic necessities of people. Now, a Christian whose faith is alive in their heart and has, is transforming them and is, is, will be Christians who lead Bible studies in workplaces and neighborhoods. Their faith will lead them to help addicts who are in rehab centers. Their faith will lead them to serve food in homeless shelters. Their faith will lead them to teach orphans in learning, uh, in learning centers. They'll help patients in AIDS clinics. That a faith and alive in the heart of a Christian will lead them to provide hospice care for the elderly, to train men and women in job skills, to tutor others in reading skills, to rock sick babies to sleep in hospitals. In other words, faith once alive in the heart of a Christian will move the Christian to take radical steps of obedience to make the gospel known around the world. How do we engage in this kind of faith? Again, the church calls this spiritual and corporal works of mercy. How do we engage in this, these kinds of works of mercy? Well, the first is that if we want to be able to give mercy to others and have deeds that transform people's hearts, we ourselves need to receive that mercy. At the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus was lifted up on the cross to atone for our sins, for your sins and my sins. That at the cross, that he took upon himself our sin so that we could receive forgiveness. He took upon himself our guilt so that we could be reconciled to the Father. That Jesus himself, though perfect in every way, became, as it were, our sacrificial lamb. So at the cross is the mercy that he has for us. There's a, a community in France, it's called Emmanuel Community. It's a, it's a Catholic community. Um, it's made up of about 8,000 people. They're all worldwide now, but a lot of them live in France. They're made up of priests and nuns and seminarians and single lay people and married couples. And they specialize in going to different parts of the world to, to in works of mercy, in spiritual and corporal works of mercy. Um, they, as a community, they create their resources and pull together resources and help people in different uh, parts of the world that are struggling. They're oftentimes asked by the Pope to be able to put on retreats for Catholics coming across the world or to go on special projects and so on. 
But you know, they say the first thing that they want all their communities to do throughout the course of the week is come before the Blessed Sacrament and get filled with mercy. Sit before the Blessed Sacrament and to worship the Lord and to learn to listen to his word. Because they say we can't do any of these other things unless we first come before the Lord and get filled up with him. Their belief is as they get filled up with him, they have the compassion to be able to then go and minister to other people through works of mercy that will transform lives. So if we want to give mercy away, if we want to be a person whose deeds are, are transformative and healing to other people's lives, we first have to come before the Lord and get filled up with him. Be filled with mercy so you can give away mercy to others. The second thing is to value relationships over things. You know, things pass away. Things don't last. Things have a temporal value to us. But people last forever. C.S. Lewis said that you never met a mortal person. Everybody's immortal. Everybody's going to live forever in some place, either with the Lord or away from the Lord. But human beings are immortal because they are made in the image and likeness of God. And human beings are redeemed by the blood of Christ at the cross. Now, people can reject what Jesus has done for them. They can refuse to believe and put their trust in him, but they're still, he still died for them. That's the value and the worth he's placed upon that person. That Jesus, the Son of God, came and laid down his life for that person, even if that person rejects Christ forever. Point is, that's the value the Lord places upon that person in sending the second person of Trinity for them. So valuing people over things. Heidi and Roland Baker are two American missionaries, and they, over 30 years ago, they felt the Lord call them to go to Mozambique, also one of the most violent nations as well. It's run basically by gangs, and certainly 30 years ago, it was very much in that situation. But over a 30-year period, what uh, Heidi and Roland Baker found was they found orphans, uh, many orphans, and so they would gather the orphans and begin to care for them, and they formed churches out of the orphans. You know, so over a 30-year period, orphanages sprung up all over Mozambique as a result of Heidi and Roland Baker's work, and through the orphanages, they would bring the gospel, the good news of Christ to these children, particularly, and eventually to their families. What Heidi and Roland Baker believed was that each child was, 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 it had an eternal dignity before us because they were made in the image and likeness of God, because they were redeemed by Christ. And so each child was precious to them and brought them into what would they call today churches that eventually were the orphanages to begin with. Somebody asked them, how do you do this? And they said, they said, we stop for the one. It's the way she, she has a phrase called, I stop for the one. Which means that each person is so valuable in the eyes of the Lord that they stop for the one and care for the one. And that's how they built over some 50,000 um, small churches throughout Mozambique that are basically orphanages that care for these children. Third aspect is go the second mile. The phrase Jesus said, talked about going the second mile, that's something Christians picked up in the early uh, years after Pentecost. What that meant was that the Roman government had a law that said that 
that if a soldier came up to you and said, I want you to carry my luggage, you were required by law to do that for one mile. So let's say you're minding your own business, you're doing your garden, right? And a Roman soldier comes up to you and says, carry my luggage. So you'd have to stop what you're doing, pick up 65 to 85 pounds of luggage, and carry it for one mile. Once you hit the one mile mark, you could drop it. No questions asked, go back to your gardening. But Christians would oftentimes go the second mile with a Roman soldier. It is reported that in the early church, many Roman soldiers came to Christ. It's believed that it was in the second mile that they came to Christ. Sometimes, to show mercy to others, we have to go the second mile with it. When we go the second mile with somebody, it's where things really change. Things really have the opportunity to change. Nothing happens in the first mile. It's the second mile that we walk with a person is where change can take place for them. If you want to show mercy, be willing to go the second mile with the person. Lastly, the fourth is mercy is messy. It costs us. It costs us in time. It costs us in energy. It costs us in resources. You know, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He was born in basically a barn, you know, he was laid in a manger, which was a trough for animals to eat from. That's pretty messy, you know. Jesus' cross, his passion was messy. People spat on him. They beat him. He was bruised. He was bloody. That was messy. Our redemption was messy. Mercy is messy. C.S. Lewis, writing about Pontius Pilate, said that, you know, Pilate, um, he didn't want to see Jesus die. In fact, he tried to work to get Jesus free. Again, Jesus were trumped up, and they basically, you know, didn't mean anything. And, and it was just the animosity of the Sanhedrin against him. He worked to get free this man. And as a result of that, um, Pilate himself found himself in a position where he, political pressure was so strong against him, it was causing him to, become, to cave in. So C.S. Lewis said this about Pontius Pilate. He said, Pilate was merciful until it became risky. Mercy cost us. It cost us time, energy, it costs us resources. So it may mean something like this, sitting down with a good friend who you know is acting in a way that's self-destructive in his behavior, perhaps, towards his family, towards himself, sitting down with him and say, you know, I have faults just like you have faults. I have my sins like you have your sins. But look, this is what I'm observing. This is what I'm seeing. And look, if you don't stop this, your life could be headed down to destruction. You could hurt others with it. That's messy, you know. Mercy is messy. It costs us to sit down with a person like that and talk to them heart to heart because you might be rejected. But isn't it worth it? You can save that person from self-destructive behavior, or it may cost you resources, finances, time, energy to help them get back on their feet. That's messy for you. But isn't it worth it for the value of who that person is? Or it may be a person in your life who's an enemy to you, to take the time each day to pray for them. That's messy. Do that. But that's what mercy is. Mercy costs. Mercy's messy. It costs us time, energy, and money. 
resources. Faith without works is dead. But faith, when it's alive in our hearts, will make us salt and light to a suffering and broken humanity. And the Lord has placed us in this generation, he's placed your life and mine in this generation to be light and salt to a suffering, broken humanity. He's given us resources, gifts, time, energy to be able to mobilize all that to bring his good news to a humanity that is truly struggling in knowing God's love and freedom for their life. We are placed strategically in this time to make a difference in their life. So let's pray. So Lord, we pray this morning, thanking you for the mercy of the cross, that your son who left the comforts of heaven and came to earth to take upon himself our sin, our brokenness, our failures, so that by his wounds, the wounds of the second person of the Trinity, we can be healed, we can be set free. So, Father, we thank you for the mercy you've shown us. We ask you to help us individually and as a faith community to mobilize our resources, our time, our energy, our gifts, our abilities, our finances, to be able to be light and salt to a suffering, broken humanity. Lord, we ask you to help us to value the people in our life over the things in our life. Help us, Lord, to be able to recognize the value of stopping for the one in our life as we listen with our heart to the needs and the cry of their heart. And Lord, help us to go to that lives really change, that you work in a very strategic way. And Lord, help us to be willing to pay the cost in showing mercy, the cost with our time, our resources, and our energy. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.